invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue moving through 1 Peter. As we talked last week, we are transitioning now in the middle of chapter 2 from a, a very heavy theological portion of Peter into a uh, relational portion of Peter. We're talking about our relationships. We began last week talking about the necessity of personal righteousness, of personal uh, sanctification in our walk with God. That as we are sojourners and pilgrims here, that should be our attitude towards our place in this world, that this is just temporary, this is not our permanent place, and, and that the real relationship that we need to develop is that with God. Uh, and we saw that we have instruction regarding the war, the battle that we are engaged in, and that one relationship, it sounds really strange, with ourselves, that somehow we have this, this tension going on in, in our own lives that we need to recognize that we have a desire to serve God, but also our flesh desires after that which betrays uh, our God. And so we have that battle we need to be engaged in, not just individually. We talked about personal righteousness, but we recognize that that personal righteousness is fostered and developed within the context of the body of saints. That we do that as a, as a family, as a, as a unit, that we come to personal righteousness and we understand that it is not just uh, me taking care of myself, but it is me caring for and developing righteousness in my brethren within my assembly. And we didn't talk about this too much last week, but really this is the whole focus and attention that we have the instruction in God's word of how to do church discipline. We often think of that as a very negative thing, and certainly because we're dealing with sin that is unrepentant, uh, it is certainly from that perspective a negative thing. But it is really a very positive part of the Bible's instruction for us of how we draw one another in towards righteousness. Because we have to remember that the objective of church discipline is not judgment, but of restoration. The purpose of that is to remind one another and to keep one another walking in the truth and that once we start to wander off that we take the pains and yes there are pains involved there's risk involved of going out and getting that one lost sheep that one that's wandering off and doing what is necessary to try to turn their attention back and to bring them back into the flock of God and that is part of the shepherding aspect that too many pastors neglect and because it's hard work and, and it's not always very rewarding. Uh, but yet that is our responsibility one to another is to say, hey, I see some things go on in your life. They need to be eradicated from your life because they're really of the flesh and not of God. And to ask that question, does this glorify God in your life? Uh, not only asking the question of ourselves, but of one another. And really, church discipline process is all about that. From the very early stages, where we simply confront one-on-one, -on -one and then two-on-one, and then, and then a handful, the leadership, and then go to the whole church, and then finally, if necessary, if there's just persistent commitment to sin, that we, as a body of saints, turn away from that individual. And again, what is the goal? The goal is not only to maintain our purity, but to seek to 
do everything in our power to bring their personal righteousness into line with God's word. And that is not a disfavor we're doing to them. That is a benefit of church uh, membership, of church, of belonging within a local assembly is that we have this personal commitment to one another that we might aid one another in, in our righteous uh, walk and where we wander and that it gets corrected. If you read through God's word, it doesn't take very long through the New Testament to realize that a majority of our epistles in our New Testament are written with that very objective in place. It is, uh, most all of them are written to instruct, certainly, but more potently to correct, to rebuke. As we go through and we read Galatians, you read Corinthians, you, you read these books, there's very few of them that you aren't going to get very far into and realize we're dealing with a problem in the church where there isn't excellence, there is not godliness, there isn't a holiness, and that's what the apostles, the authors of Scripture, wanted to see produced in the lives of these that they are ministering to. And so because of that desire, we have several we have many books of our New Testament written for us, and I believe including 1 Peter, seeking to challenge people to walk righteously and godly in this present world, even while we are looking for the blessed hope of God's glorious appearing, Christ's glorious appearing. And so we have that battle that we are engaged in, but we are not isolated in that battle, even though each one of us has that within us, that, that flesh versus the spirit war that is there, but that we are engaged in it together, that we all share that common enemy, and we all share that common battle, and we are better at winning that if we do that together. And that is a rarity in Christianity today, and I think that's one of the reasons there's a rarity of personal holiness in our churches today, is because we have bought into individualism that somehow I can grow and develop as a Christian without other Christians around me. And that has been reinforced, um, not by pastors recently, but by the world that wants to isolate us. And we see that that is a, a tactic Satan has often used. And so we find that we uh, gather together, not just to worship, but also to encourage and sometimes to rebuke and correct. That is half of the use of God's word is... is Rebuke, correct, instruct in righteousness. And so we, we neglect that because we don't love each other enough to be concerned about our own walk with, about each other's walk with God. And that's really what it is. It's a selfishness. I don't want to participate in the confrontational process that, to draw someone toward greater righteousness. We like this part where I'm teaching, instructing, and being an example. We tend towards those, and I prefer those myself that I want to just teach the truth, try to live the truth, be an example, and, and, and encourage people to follow me. We don't like the other side of rebuke and correcting. And that's true in every relationship. Uh, it's true in your relationship with your children. We really don't prefer to have to rebuke, correct, and discipline. We don't want to do that. No parent I've ever met what is looking for an opportunity to do that. Usually they're, oh, I got to do it again. Um, why do you keep doing that? If it's so uncomfortable and distasteful for you, why do you keep disciplining them? Well, because you love them, and you know that the, 
the end result of not doing it is the destruction of that child's life. And so to save them, you engage in that. And oh, that we would love one another enough to do as Peter does for his readers and beg them to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, to help them in that battle and to uh, do that as a body of saints. We come now into this next relationship that uh, Peter is concerned about. And we think, well, if the first relationship is about the battle between my flesh and my spirit, then the next relationship is going to have to do with the church, but it doesn't. The next relationship he's worried about is the application of personal righteousness in the realm of the world. Of the, and he describes it as the Gentiles. Uh, in verse 12 of 1 Peter 2, it reads, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. We're going to link this in with a few other verses. Remember, our key verse for this passage on relationships is verse 17. And let's go down and read that again. It says, Honor all people, love their brethren, fear God, honor the king. And while this is not the order in which he is going to do these in, these, in this chapter and the one to follow, uh, it gives us a good understanding of a summary. We are in the context of honoring all people. Uh, we've already looked, in, looked last week at fearing God in terms of our personal holiness. We're going to be looking next at honoring the king. That's going to take us a few weeks uh, simply because of the milieu that you are involved in and that you hear. And we have various approaches. We're going to be looking at a lot of different scripture for that. But we're in this context of honoring all people, that we just don't have a relationship to one another, a responsibility there. But we have a responsibility to conduct ourselves in a godly manner in front of the world, that that is actually a high priority for the Christian life. Uh, we think, well, the important place to, for me to live godly is in front of Christians. And when I get out there in front of the world, well, it's not that critical. No, it is actually the opposite. The reverse is true. It is most critical that we live righteously and godly in this present world, that we live among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers, in the most godly fashion possible. Um, and we have it upside down, don't we? When we think about hypocrisy, we think, well, I'm going to go to church and be this spiritual person, and then I'm going to go out in the world and be like the world. And uh, that we just conform to whatever environment we are in. But the fact is, if there's any place that you should... Um, put on the airs, at least, of righteousness, it is in the world. If there's anywhere you can let yourself go a little bit, it should be in the church. What? Yeah, be honest of who you are. This is a place you can do that, should be able to do that. Now, if I sit down with your children, and I do this every now and then, just because it's kind of fun, uh, to find out what life is like in your house. And if you sit down with my children, and sometimes my grandchildren now, uh, you can find out what life is like in my house. Because what happens at home? Well, you're yourself, aren't you? We relax, and we just become ourselves. We don't 
try to be something we're not because it's just too arduous to do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have to have some place where we can just be ourselves and recognize that doesn't mean that I have that I have surrendered to being myself, that I'm not trying to improve my family life. But generally, in our home, we let down our hair, so to speak. We relax, we put on our comfortable clothes, and we are just ourselves with all of our warts and, and faults and everything. They're all just hanging out there. And then we invite company in, and then we all are going to behave, right? And so we have higher expectations of the children and of each other uh, and ourselves when we have company in. Uh, so we understand that in the context of our home, but somehow we haven't transferred that into the concept of our church family. We call ourselves family, but we don't act like family. You see, we, can let our, we should be able to relax and be comfortable with one another enough to be ourselves, to be transparent is the term they all use, uh, to be ourselves with one another, with all of our faults, with all of our problems, and just say, I'm working on this, I'm working on that, and we can help each other, and we can address these things and, and learn to live with one another in the context of that, and also still trying to sharpen one another and challenge one another in a very loving manner. This is the concept of taking people from where they are and accepting them without accepting the things that are about them that are not godly. I can accept the person and where they are in their spiritual life and say, well, this isn't the end for you, is it? No, I'm on a journey. Well, I'm here to help you along this journey. You want to be where I want to be. I want to be godly. I want to be holy, holy, holy unto the Lord. And so let's take this journey together. We can, we can support and encourage one another. But we find quite the opposite. When we come into church, this is maybe the time that we are the least like ourselves. And then we get out in the world and we're actually more like ourselves. But the world is our primary mission. This is the place where they need to see godliness in practice. And we need to be more about living righteously and godly when we are in the world. If there's anyone who should be complaining about your hypocrisy, it should be your pastor. Well, you're so godly out there, but you come in here. And you're yourself. But that might be the better thing, wouldn't you think? That we can be godly out there and then come in here and deal with all the faults and sins and problems. That should be the way it is. But unfortunately, like I said, we have it reversed. And so Peter says, listen, you have a primary objective, the primary mission of the church, and therefore each individual within the church, each member of the body, is to present Christ, the offer of salvation, to the lost in the world. And that requires something of us. And again, the example for this is Jesus Christ himself, of course. He says, uh, you know, I've, I've come, and I've come to bring you the truth. I've come to call men to repentance. I have come not to condemn you. You're, you're condemning yourself because you're going to have a judgment day. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. You're going to have a judgment coming, but I've come to offer you life, and I've come to serve you and to, and to be holy among you, to teach you, to instruct you, and 
it is your only hope. And that's what we are to be to the world. We are to go out there and live righteously and godly. We are to go out there and teach and to instruct, to admonish, to, to invite, and to take people caught in sin and challenge them about uh, their need. And then when Jesus Christ encounters these people, he does not condemn them. He rather seeks to minister to them and is those who generally responded to him. Much more than the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see, they're the religious elite. They weren't responsive. Who is responsive? We're the sinners. Who are touched by the compassionate example of Christ to minister to them, but to not be among them. That is not to be them. To be righteous, to be a holy one, to be standing for truth, and yet be in such a loving fashion you're going to serve those that hate the truth or are sinning against it. And so Peter calls us that our conduct needs to be among the Gentiles such that all they see is your good works. And we're going to define that here very shortly. That that's all they see. And that's how we honor them. Because the worst thing that we can do in front of the world is portray Christians as no different than non-Christians. Because that tells them that we don't have we we have nothing that they don't that they're missing. What do you have that I don't have? Well, if that question never comes in as they evaluate and examine your life, then something's wrong. You're failing in your fundamental mission of being ambassadors of the kingdom of God, which means you're gonna have to act like God's people instead of like Americans or Worldly people or Gentiles or whatever. And so we have our conduct should be honorable among the Gentiles. This is how we honor them, is by being honorable. That we come forward and we're going to do what is right, regardless of the cost. And yes, it is costly to do what is right. And so when he says that they're going to look at your good works, uh, we're going to talk about that. Let's jump to verse 15. And again, we have this concept introduced to us. Again, he's going to revisit it, and we're going to visit this again in weeks to come with the, in terms of government. And verse 15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And so we are called upon to do good. And in verse 12, that your good works uh, are going to be seen, are going to be evidenced, that you are going to be honorable people. And we all have, hopefully, an understanding of what it means to be honorable. That is that you are a person of your word. That when you give your word, it is kept to the fullest extent of your abilities. That you are trustworthy. That means that you will do the same whether you're being supervised or unsupervised. That you will be on time. That you will be, uh, you, you will be. Be where you say you're going to be, when you're going to be there, and ready to do what you're supposed to be doing. That I'm not, a, I'm not going to lie and deceive and misguide anyone. These are honorable things, that we treat people with honor. That we consider them, this is Philippians, right? That we esteem others better than ourselves. How do I want to be treated? That golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. That we treat them in this fashion. That we 
exert our godliness more out there than in here. That we strive to demonstrate it more there than anywhere. You may say, well, pastor, that's a tall order because I spend more time out there than I do in here. Well, that's another problem we could talk about sometime. <laughs> Why we aren't meeting daily house to house. Um, but I understand that. And we have a lot of pressures out there that we don't have in here. I understand that too. And you have to deal with ungodly people out there, unlike in here, supposedly. Um, and I understand that as well. And that's why we have this kind of instruction, to be vigilant, to being, understand this is a battle that you're engaged in, and it requires vigilance. Vigilance means that I'm always ready, that I am, but I'm, that I'm prepared, that I'm recognizing that I should be always alert and aware that I am Christ to these people around me, and I may be the only one. The only true Christian they see might be me. And so my speech, my attitude, even my very countenance matters. And I should, how I carry myself isn't about glorifying me. Uh, it's really about honoring them and treating them well, treating them like people above us, even though they might be in authority structure below us, uh, in experience less than us, but yet we still honor them. I can speak to them politely, and all of this falls under a category that we really have lost, and that's civility. Just being civil, uh, which is largely lost in our society, and so we just like to call everybody names, and with supercharged words that really become meaningless because we overuse them and abuse them. But rather, to speak civilly to one another. And we have seen in every society, as, the, as a society degrades, as a nation or empire degrades, that one of the things that degrades with it very quickly is civility. And James tells us where that starts. It starts where? It starts with your tongue. How we talk to one another. How do you talk to people in the world? Are we patient? Are we cordial? Are we more formal? Are we willing to treat people with honor? Are we honoring people in how we talk with them? And this we are called upon to do, to conduct ourselves honorably among them. So we're going to do those good works. And good works here isn't just some things, but in these oftentimes more relational matters that we're going to treat people with honor. We might consider them uh, economically inferior to us. We may think of them socially inferior to us, educationally inferior to us. Whatever those ways of measuring people that the world uses, we come to them rather with God's measure and say, well, Jesus Christ died for them. And if he was willing to sacrifice that for them, and he loves them that much, I can honor them. And it is really their only hope. Their hope is that they can see your good works, that they might observe them. They want to, and that's the expectation that Peter has here. They're going to see what you do before they hear what you say. They're going to see what you do. That we are out there conducting ourselves in an honorable manner, 
that we might gain an audience. And that once that audience is gained, that we do not give the, we not accept the praise and adoration of man. We reflect that back to God, and then we confront them with their need for a Savior. And this also is how we honor them. For we are seeking what is their benefit, what they need. Now, is this always going to turn out great for you? No. We understand that, I hope. Uh, notice that both here and in verse 15, verse 12 and verse 15, we have an expectation. The expectation here in verse 12 in the middle says that then when they speak against you as evildoers, you're going to seek to treat them honorably. You're going to give them the fair deal every time. You're going to do right, even if it costs you. You're going to prefer them over your own interests. You're going to be a benefit to their job, to their neighborhood. You're going to be an asset. But they're going to speak against you as evildoers. This is called rumors. This is called gossip. This is called slander and accusation. This is bearing false witness. And there is nothing new under the sun, is there? This has been going on among God's people for a very long time. And so we hear what they speak. I'm trying to conduct myself honorably, seeking to gain an audience and a, and a right to, in, to speak the truth. And they speak against us as evildoers. Now, in a specific context here, in the early church, it's kind of interesting what this meant to them in that day. Here's what they were accused of. Here's what Christians were accused of by the Romans. They were accused of being cannibals. Does that make sense to you? They were accused of being cannibals. Why? Well, they go into secret places and they eat the body of Christ and they drink his blood. Because they didn't understand the spiritual significance of that, they, they were accused of being cannibals. And that was a very common Roman perception of Christians is that, oh, they're cannibals. If you go among them, they'll eat you. Which, by the way, isn't a rare th accusation uh, in many lands, even in, in Oriental lands, in third world, in, in uh, primitive places, that is a common accusation against Christians. They'll eat you. They eat people who aren't among one of them. That we are cannibals. But that was one of the accusations the Romans had against them. The other accusation is going to startle you, um, that Christians are atheists. You're atheists. That was one of the Romans' perception of the Christian cult was that it was an atheistic cult. You say, well, they believe, we believe in God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You don't believe in the gods. You see, you're an atheist. You reject all of their gods, all of them. You reject every single one of them. From Zeus to Mercury, you, you refuse, you don't accept any of them. Even Hercules, you don't even accept. The half-gods, you don't accept any of them. You are atheists. And this was some of the accusations that came against Christians, and we can see it in trials. We have some of the text work from some of the trials, like Polycarps and people like that, and that was it, but they were accused of these things that led to their martyrdom, their death. Not just insurrection, we're going to talk about the next few weeks, but religiously, they were condemned. And so we 
come to these kinds of accusations and recognize that this is the history. When we know that from God's word, we know the story of Joseph, don't we? We know that he was doing good, that he was doing what is right. And somehow his brothers hated him. He obeyed his father, went to get his brothers to see how they were doing. He gets grabbed by them, uh, stripped off, thrown in a well, sold into slavery, and proclaimed dead to dad. That's how he was treated for being a obedient son. He gets to Egypt and he is a faithful steward in the household of Potiphar. Now what does that get him? Jail. Because they spoke evil of him. Was he evil? No, he did good. He resisted temptation. You know, I'm resisting temptation. And, you know, everything should be well. I'm in this high point and then crushed. Are you expecting that from the world? Or do you think you should just coast through life comfortably? My Bible says something differently. He ends up in jail. He serves in jail. He becomes a steward in the jail. And the jailer can entrust him with everything because he's going to keep being honorable no, what, no matter what environment he is placed in. And he serves these two servants of Pharaoh and, and one is killed, but the other one go, is, is restored and forgets about him for years. But he's going to keep doing good. Oh, that we remember these accounts of what it costs and that faithfulness is measured across time and, and the opposition of the world against us. They're going to speak evil of you. We have other examples, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know them. We know their story. We know what they endured. That they were doing good, they were serving God and serving the king, and they're going to be a big part of our next few weeks. Um, but they are, there's a line, and they're not going to cross that line. And so here comes people who are going to speak evil of them. Oh, they're not, they're not honoring you, king, when they were honoring the king. But the accusation, the false accusation was they weren't honoring the king. And that got three of them thrown into a fiery furnace. It got one of them thrown into a lion's den. Um, that's the end result. You read this morning from, in Sunday school in the adult class from Psalm 69 where it talks about, and that's referred to Jesus Christ, that they hate me without a cause. That the number of people who hate me without a cause are without number. They're just like the hairs on my head, which isn't very many for me anymore. But... Uh, as the hairs of my head are the people who hate me without reason. I've only done good to them. Let me go to another one similarly that David talks about in Psalm 38. You read Psalm 69 there in Sunday school. Let's go to Psalm 38 and see what's going on again. We'll pick up in verse 13. It says, But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth is no response. For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord, my God. For I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips, they exalt themselves against me. They are just waiting for you to lose your temper. They're just waiting for you to do something that isn't honorable. They're just waiting for you to be slanderous in your speech. They're just waiting for you to be cross and grumpy for no reason. They're just waiting for it. Keep reading. 
For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity, I will be in anguish over my sin. But my enemies are vigorous, and they are strong. And those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries, because I follow what is good. Your relationship with the world should be one in which we are honorable among them, we are good towards them, with zero expectation of them reciprocating that to us. That in fact, they're going to do the opposite to us. As we do good to them, they're going to do evil to us, but I will keep, I'll persist in doing good. I'll persist in being honorable. I'll persist in, in, in treating and speaking to them in an honorable fashion. Because I recognize that I may be their only hope of hearing, seeing, and hearing the gospel. These are some of our Old Testament examples, and there are plenty others we can go to. Most all the prophets were in that condition, trying to serve Israel, trying to serve Judah, and being disserved in return, even to the point of death. But they loved the people of God and wanted to serve them. Even though they were in sin in Israel and in Judah. Let's go to Matthew. Kind of interesting. I think, um, I don't know, I think uh, Mr. Roberts was all over the scriptures today. I think he hit about every passage I had marked in my Bible for this morning's message talked about the Sermon on the Mount as well. So let's go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. I don't know how studying Mark ended up in the Sermon on the Mount, but he got there. I catch some things. I don't catch everything because I got these five kids that are demanding. In the Beatitudes, we think of all the blessedness here, and we go through all of these, and we're uh, hopefully instructed by them and challenged by them uh, and that we ought to be, this is what an honorable life is about, one that serves God. But we come to verse 11 and we said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Peter would have certainly heard these terms, and it's no uh, mistake that they end up in his writing, that this concept is there. It is ingrained in him. He watched it in Jesus Christ. He has studied it in the Old Testament, and he has been instructed in the, in the, in the teaching of Christ that this is something to rejoice and be exceedingly glad for. They, they exhibited that. When they answered before the Sanhedrin, they stood to that authority, they spoke the truth, they received stripes, they received the beatings for it, and they left there glad, because this is what Jesus instructed them, rejoice when people first speak evil about you and then do evil against you, because you have done them good. Because it says, great is your reward in heaven, which is what we're getting to very shortly. So we're going to come back to that concept. But turn with me a little bit farther in chapter 5. And go to verse 38 and following. 
It says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's getting even. Retribution. We even call that justice. But the Christian knows better than to ask for justice, don't we? Because if a Christian asks for justice, we know what that means. It means that I spend eternity in the lake of fire because that's what's just. That's what's right because I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not holy, holy, holy like the Lord God Almighty. So I don't really want justice. What I really want is mercy. Hence, blessed are the merciful. But that was what everyone wants, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And we're seeing that extensively in our society still to this day. But I tell you not to resist the evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard there was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? <laughs> they were, the IRS was still bad even then. Sorry, I had to inject that. Um, and if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And again, in verse 1, Take heed, therefore you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you shall have no reward from your Father in heaven. And so we're seeking to do good towards people. We're seeking to do uh, what is right and honorable towards them, even if they hate us, even if they slander us, even if they make our life miserable. I am not contemplating and trying to figure out how to get even, how to make them pay. I simply recognize that this is the outworking of their flesh, and they don't have the battle between their flesh and their spirit in them that I have. They only can do this. They are ruled by their flesh, by their sin. And therefore, they must obey their father, the devil. They must heed him. And so I recognize that I need to have this incredible patience towards them and that is driven by a love that is superhuman. And that's why it has to be the love of God in us that we share with others. It's not something you're going to conjure up inside yourself. This is our relationship with the world. We talk about missions, we talk about sharing the gospel with people, but we cannot divorce that from our exercise of personal holiness in their presence, constantly being constant in being holy in front of others. This is what Jesus Christ calls blessed, that when we get into these conditions, this is the real test. It's not whether they like you. If I'm good to people who are good to me, well, that's the same thing as the world. It's when I'm good to people who are wrongful to me who even hate me, who speak evil about me, recognizing that I have something available to me that they don't have. And this Christ mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, as we saw there, that there is a day of reward and there is a day of punishment. 
And again, we try to, we try to reverse these. We try to reverse, and, and instead of waiting for the day, and Peter talks about in the day of visitation, that when Jesus Christ visits them, when God visits upon men, and whether they are good or evil, whether they've done well or poorly, we come upon this judgment. The judgment isn't ours. Somehow we want the day of visitation in this world at this time. We want God to stick it to evil people today so we can watch it. Let's be honest about that. And we want them to suffer. And, and David talks about that in, and he, he pleads for it. He begs for it in the Psalms. You know, bring them down. Bring them down to destruction. Dash their children on the rocks. I mean, the, the imprecatory Psalms are a powerful presentation of what we believe will be justice one day. And we desire after that. But not today. Because this is not the day of visitation. This is the day of salvation. And what we tend to do in our engagement with the world and our relationship with them is we want them to be penalized and suffer and die and, and have all these evil things happen to them. We want them to pay for their sin today. Because we, we want it to stop. But this is not the day for that. This is the day of salvation. This is the day that God patiently waits and invites. For if the fact is that if God didn't do that, and if others didn't do that, you and I would be under judgment for the sins we have committed. And I have difficulty myself struggling with this, but I, and just realizing that there's a day of judgment and it will come. And God will pour it out. He knows how to judge better than I do. And he knows when to do that. What we are conditioned for, or we are, what we are transformed to, is to recognize this is not the day for that. There is a day of visitation. There is a day of reward. There is a day of judgment. It will come. But today is the day of salvation. And that is something Jesus taught consistently. And so he confronts them, and yes, he tells them, go and sin no more. He, he tells them, if you don't eat of my body, drink of my blood, you have no part of me. Uh, you're doing the works of your father, the devil, instead of I do the works of my father in heaven. Um, he certainly distinguishes that, but all through that, the offer is there, because today is not the day of judgment. Today is the day of salvation. This is our objective. Now, do I want the evil ones to be judged for their evil? Yes, if they persist in it to the day of judgment. If they persist to that day, yes, I want them to be judged, and God, I am confident, will judge them. Would it make my life easier if they were judged right now? Yes. It would make me more comfortable. If all the people perpetrating evil things against uh, humanity were all judged today, it would make our lives better, safer, more comfortable for sure. Um, but that's selfishness. That's me desiring things for me. You know, I want to be 
free. I want to be um, <laughs> economically independent. I want to be able to go and do whatever I want, whenever I want. I want to uh, have good health and liberty to all, all the things that we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks. I, I want all those things. And it seems like if God would just wipe out all these people that are inflicting this pain on humanity, that it would make our lives so much better. No, it won't. It won't, ultimately. Um, first of all, this isn't my home. And if it's better here, it tells me that I'll start longing for here instead of longing for home. And I'll start being satisfied and happy with things here. I'll start setting my vision on, on a second home and, a, and a, more cars and boats and a place at the beach. And on and on. I'll just start setting my affections on this world. No, the best thing that can happen is what's happening. That, you're, that, that we receive misery from the evil of this world to remind ourselves that there is a day. I'm longing for that day. The day of visitation. And that visitation is twofold, isn't it? It's reward, Jesus says. Great will be your reward in heaven. So there's in the day of visitation is that day, and the other day of visitation is one of judgment. And while we move towards that day, I want you to notice that everybody that day will glorify God. Peter says that they who speak against you as evildoers may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. All men will glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, I look at this verse and my first desire is that, well, they've seen my good works, they've spoken evil of me, but I persisted in being good and honorable and doing what is right. And, and then they got convicted by watching my example and they received Christ and they're going to glorify God the day of visitation because they're going to be in heaven and, say, and sing that song, thank you for giving to the Lord. Have you heard that song? I should have had that as, you know, that there's this line of people that are going to thank uh, me for giving them the gospel so they could avoid, but no, they're not going to do that. All thanks and praise goes to Jesus Christ. And that's very possibly one perspective of this verse, and, but it, there's also another half of this that is often neglected, and that is that even those who are in eternal punishment and judgment will glorify God because of the justice. I had access because this person was in my life and they treated me honorably. They did good works. They, they spoke the truth in love and they demonstrated Christ and I rejected them. I deserve this punishment. And yes, that is a means of glorifying God in the day of visitation. And that's why the Bible says every knee will bow to Christ. Whether in judgment or in reward, every knee will bow. And I want to add to God's glory, either by seeing people respond to the example of being honorable among them and treating them with respect and dignity, regardless of their class in society, that I'm going to care for them as, as one of my own, and demonstrate, 
biblical love towards them, and or they're going to reject it and be in judgment, but having had access, that their blood is not on my hands because I showed them Christ. I spoke the truth in love, and therefore their punishment is deserved, for they rejected it. And thus we have here that there's a day of visitation, that God will be glorified, but that glorification, the extent of it, is dependent upon where I'm at. Am I living out Christ before people that they can see my good works and based upon how much true Christianity they see at the day of visitation will be the extent to which they glorify God. Isn't that interesting? One is dependent upon the other. The extent to which God is glorified in heaven is dependent in this verse upon people seeing you Exercise personal holiness of being honorable. When we start recognizing that there is a there is a value beyond this life, not only for me but for more <laughs> value to me is is immeasurable already because Christ has already forgiven me so much, but that. The glory to God is multiplied by believers conducting themselves honorably among the Gentiles, doing good even when they speak evil, doing right even when they do wrong, doing what is good when they do evil against us, not seeking retaliation because this isn't the day of judgment. This is the day of salvation. And this is what our message is. Our relationship with the world is completely described here in very precise terms, but it is built upon all of this that we've said so much more that I haven't gotten to out of the scriptures, out of the teachings of Christ and the example of Jesus Christ who came to serve sinners. And this is what we leave this place. Let your hair down here be yourselves here. We'll deal with your faults. You get out there, you better be Christ. You be Christ to those people. They need it. They need an impeccable testimony of holiness. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word. We pray that we might leave here renewed in our commitment to portray you in our lives, in our speech, in our attitudes, in our very expressions on our face, to bring you glory, honor, and praise. Today, and also on that day of visitation, that you might be magnified in the eyes of all men. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.